Hi, this is Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. In light of the horrific tragedy in Maine, this week's episode from the silo is a conversation between Norman Cavita about the lack of progress on gun control from January of this year. Unfortunately, it is just as relevant now as it was then. We hope you find it informative. The DSR listener survey is now here. Your voice matters and we want to hear it. So please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below. Thank you. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. So much of what we're seeing in the gun issue is theology. And Dr. Kavita Patel. Don't have one in your house, no matter what. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country. As we head into another cycle of elections and what our leaders are saying or doing about these issues. Today, we wanted to tackle a topic that, in full disclosure to our listeners, has really been something that Norm and I have wanted to talk about, unfortunately, all too many an occasion to talk about. And that's just the most recent spate of gun violence that has gotten media attention. I just want to say that there are so many incidences of what would be considered mass shooting events that get no media attention, but unfortunate sequence of events that occurred around Lunar New Year and hitting hard, especially in the Asian American and Latin American communities in California, that the country, the world is still reeling from. When talking about this episode, and I'll give Norm a chance to weigh in, when talking about preparing for this episode, all of us, including our producer, kind of thought, well, what can we say? If we just say, like, you know, government needs to dot, 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 we're not going to get anywhere. And Yet, we felt like we still needed to bring this because it's what we're all talking about. So, Norm, first for me is the Monterey Park shooting, just because I used to live in Los Angeles. You've probably, I've been to the Monterey Park. I've been to like the Asian communities inside of Monterey Park because one, they're some of the most welcoming communities. And two, they really do have the best food in all of Southern California. And so I've had my share of hot pots and have actually seen that community center. I remember where it is. So, I'll give my immediate reactions, but I'd love to get your thoughts and maybe kind of giving our listeners a sense of why we still think this is important to talk about. So, you know, we had this uh, really over the span of barely more than a week. We had the six-year-old shooting her teacher. Then we have Monterey Park, and then we have Half Moon Bay. And one of the things we know is that it's almost like suicide attempts among young people. You get one and almost inevitably, you're going to get more. It triggers something in people. But, you know, what, what strikes me the most now, Kavita, is where in the past you'd have one of these mass shootings and it would bring a national revulsion, a sense of horror. And now you get that for a, a few seconds and then we move on because it's become so commonplace. And Of course, we know that in the past when we had the most horrific ones, Sandy Hook and more recently Uvalde, things that ought to bring not just a public revulsion, but some movement towards a change in policy, something, people want to do something, that's just not even on the books anymore. And it leads, I think, to a a couple of conclusions. Obviously, one of them is that the uh, pro-gun forces, the NRA and others, learned 
very well over a period of time that if they could just quell the initial response, people would lose attention and turn to something else and you wouldn't have any momentum to do much of anything. But the other is just the deadening of outrage over these sorts of things. And uh, it, I think, has to get us to rethink where we're going with all of this. We're not going to get the kinds of changes we want in the short run, at least, even though they would be patches on a huge system, background checks, even as we've just seen courts saying they're going to restore the ability to have bump stocks so you can get even more bullets that can kill people. We're not going to get action in legislation. We're going to have to rethink this issue and try and look elsewhere. I completely agree. I'll say that uh, I think we've all been saying, at least in the kind of public health community, that gun violence is a public health issue. And that's been, again, another one of these refrains. It's not like that's a new message. But in light of the pandemic, it's been interesting to kind of contrast, compare and contrast the approach to truly like our own other pandemic that is gun violence and certainly what we should be doing as a parallel. Here's what I'll just kind of offer that in a matter of three years, because we had to, we stood up an incredible surveillance research epidemiological effort for a virus that never existed before. Yet here we have very little, very little research. And there's a reason for it. It's the Dickey Amendment is one piece of it that gets used, unfortunately, as a bit of an excuse. But it does create, especially because, and I'll say what the Dickey Amendment is, that has set the tone, I think, for shying away from research that would specifically call out gun-related research outright. The Dickey Amendment, briefly, for those of you who don't know it, 1990s appropriations bill that stipulated uh, an amendment that said none of the funds available for injury prevention and control at the CDC, which is the place you would think with gun violence research would happen, may be used to advocate or promote gun control. Those Then in, in consequential years, they actually had that ex- extension, exclusion extended to the National Institutes of Health, another place you would think this kind of research exists. So it doesn't actually ban gun-related research outright, but it puts this kind of, you know, Paul over anybody who tries to do anything that has had federal dollars attached to it. But I will argue now, if you step back and look from what you and I often talk about, which is politics and words and what's happening in DC and some of these issues, just like gun violence, the parallel thing that's happening that a lot of our listeners might be also tuned into are chat GPT, the dominance of new techniques and artificial intelligence, and the ability to now do things such as writing complex computer programs literally within milliseconds because of this technology. So the two of these worlds have to meet. There is no universe in my mind where we can't actually have the kind of research that is literally just coming from all the streams of information that can contribute to the very thing the Dickey Amendment had worked in the 90s to prevent. That's what I'd like to offer listeners to start. You don't even need to get federal legislation for this. This is really about taking charge back of epidemiology, surveillance, and research and doing it in a way that we didn't think was possible even three years ago. And I, and I just, anyway, so just, just want to like take it and, and it shouldn't be partisan because information should not be partisan. I know it will be, but it's one of the things that has frustrated me when people often say, let's not talk about gun violence because what else can we say? 
I think there's a lot more we can say, and we're just not even scratching the surface. When you and I go to a doctor, when I take care of patients, I, I thought about this all day yesterday. I never asked about guns in the home. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to. I just don't. Why is that? Because it's not part of like the norm. I ask everybody now about COVID vaccines, about when they had their last you know, mammogram. I ask about all these things because somebody has told me I need to and I'm incentivized to do it. Let's put those same incentives into the healthcare system so that every single person crossing the doors, we have a sense of what they're doing. And then let's pool that data, just like we pool data on how many women, how many persons actually get mammograms that need to over the age of 40. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm going to stop because you can see I can go on and on. That's my take on things we should be doing that I don't hear enough talk about. What, what's yours? I agree with all of that. And, and there's more. We know that, you know, these incidents like Half Moon Bay and Monterey Park get the attention of journalists for a while. You have cable news going out to these places, interviewing people who were there or family members who lost loved ones. What we also know is the vast majority of incidents involving gun violence are domestic ones that don't get much attention. That this is uh, two partners living together, get into an argument and a gun comes out. Or as we've seen in so many of these incidents as well, it's a spurned lover, a, a divorced partner, all of those things. And that's where research would help as well. There's another part of this that we know too, which is there are a lot of suicide attempts. And in many instances, there are people who do something impulsively and if they do not die in the attempt, say afterwards, I didn't really mean it, or I'm not going to do that again. If it's a gun involved, the likelihood that an impulsive attempt will end badly in the sense that somebody doesn't die and may recover just doesn't happen. And we need more research on these things as well. And you're right, it shouldn't be partisan. But the fact is that. The pro-gun people know that if the research is done, it's not going to go well for them. And that's why they banned it in the first place. And it's another part of the degradation, I think, of society, the desire not to get to the bottom of things because they interfere with your theology. And so much of what we're seeing in the gun issue is theology. The other thing I'd say here is, what we're seeing now with this Supreme Court especially, and it's interesting because the Heller decision, which I believe was wrongly decided based on a complete distortion of the historical record of the Second Amendment that basically read out of it the phrase involving a well-regulated militia. But at that point, uh, Justice Scalia, who was the progenitor of it, said that doesn't mean you can't control guns at all. In fact, if they're destructive weapons, if they're weapons of war, yes, the Constitution allows you to control those things. That's been completely lost now. And we're seeing more and more states move to extremes beyond what we ever imagined. No requirement for registration. Guns available to minors any kind of weapon, open carry, concealed carry, almost anywhere, except of course they don't allow them in their own legislative bodies or uh, around the governor's mansion. But that's going to lead to more and more tragedies. And 
One question is whether even in those places, at some point, these states go too far, open carry anywhere. Nobody has to register or offer any qualifications to get a gun, including minors. Whether at some point, even in these states like Texas and Florida that are doing these things, there is a public backlash and it's finally, maybe we've gone too far with this. But of course, in the meantime, there'll be mayhem. Yeah. And I think what I worry about is that the reason I kind of promoting like a, let's get the health systems and insurers and others to try to do things that they can do and wouldn't be anywhere near kind of, well, everything gets noticed when it comes to any issue that's a hot topic these days. But Honestly, there's really little, there's real little controversy because every major medical society has actually recommended screening for guns in the household for all the reasons that make sense, including, by the way, you reminded me, Norm, that we also do a terrible job in consistently asking about domestic violence. And it's because these are things that make people uncomfortable. I know that that's really hard when you're kind of in a emergency room, you know, there are people listening potentially. I understand that, but we are the ones that we can actually consistently learn and apply pressure to ourselves to do better at it. The reason I like it is because anything that you see happening, as you mentioned at the state level, like Florida banning outright banning any research um, at a state funded institution, et cetera, that becomes then fodder for extension into the educational curriculum, right? It, it all, it's, it's critical race theory. It's now they're telling our kids what to do. And I, I have a friend my friends from Texas kind of reminded me, I, I constantly say like, we've had carry laws in, I mean, look at New Hampshire. I mean, there's, there's states where we have had laws on the books, but the contrast is that in Texas, people, my own friends included, like to bring their guns out front. They like to kind of show with pride because they feel like it's something that differentiates them from other states, more liberal states where, you know, concealed carry and all these other and all these other ways of kind of, quote, constraining your Second Amendment, according to my friends. But I don't see a lot of people running around New Hampshire kind of, you know, with their guns on their shoulders and trying to, you know, bringing them into the Pizza Hut, which is actually a true kind of almost daily occurrence in Texas. And so I think separating out from the Second Amendment and turning this into, look, we're not going to pass judgment. You want to carry a gun. That's your right. That's whatever your decision is. We want to understand where is this happening? What neighborhoods is this happening? And what kind of viral network? I would imagine, Norm, I'm just making a wild guess, no matter what the age, whatever the race and ethnicity, that if we actually started to look at the social networks, not just of these incidences that get media attention, but to your point, which is very astute, the, I don't even know, numbers of episodes of either suicide or even homicide attempts. And then trying to think about this, think about building out from just a epidemiology standpoint, a, a network of much like smokers, what we learned in the last 20 years is that smokers don't smoke alone. So they make friends with smokers. They are naturally friends with smokers. And that helped us in trying to identify interventions and ways to help people quit smoking much in the same way. We don't have any of that research. If you and I tried to look in the books and it's not just the Dickey Amendment, I think we just have we we don't see it as much of a health issue as we do a hot button political issue. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it is a health issue. I mean, the other part of this is we see on a regular basis tragedies involving small children who get access to guns, shoot their siblings, shoot their friends, shoot themselves. 
because the culture now has almost taken away this notion that you should be super careful with your guns. You know, the parents of that six-year-old said, well, the gun had a trigger lock on it and it was in the highest cabinet. I have a hard time believing that a six-year-old would climb up to the cabinet and know how to eliminate a trigger lock. And one of the things we need to do, and this certainly ought not to be partisan in any way, but like everything else it appears to be, is parents who are not careful with guns and tragedy ensues should be punished to the full extent of the law. The message has to get out there. Uh, You're going to have guns in the household. You're going to have to handle it in a different way. I do see in a lot of evidence more and more of families now where if their kids are going for a play date, they ask the parents of the uh, home that their kid is going to whether they have any guns. Uh, I think there's a uh, at least some growing sensitivity to that. How much that happens in Texas uh, or Florida or Arizona, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I do think whether it's worth just mentioning or not, even doing this in like a Kaiser Health system, which not, is not just in California, there's Kaiser locations across the country. It's actually what the CDC uses for COVID surveillance, which a lot of people are like, really? We use private or, you know, non-government health systems? Well, yeah, because, I mean, outside of the VA, there's really very few like single source records of medical care, et cetera. Kaiser is one of them. The VA is another. And doing this, the VA, as you can imagine, because of the Dickey Amendment, would be very kind of resistant to doing this. But there's nothing that could stop an institution and, and Kaiser is trying to, I've seen in coming for this episode, I was thinking, this must ex- this must happen. There are researchers within Kaiser and they're doing things kind of in their pieces. But imagine if after Monterey Park, instead of the like tweets of like thoughts and prayers and all that, if, if what, what if we could actually flood social media with everything we know about what works and what doesn't? to help make sure that your community is safe from gun violence. Like what, why couldn't that be what the response is? And I struggle to actually think of what that is. I mean, Norm, if I had to say, you know, if you and I sat and thought, all right, let's take one of our communities in Maryland, PG County, for example, what would we do? How could I give like parents some tips? Only thing I can give them right now is don't have one in your house, no matter what, to your point. And that's it. And then be careful about where your children are, because you might want to ask these questions before you drop them off. But this is, you know, again, 2023 with all this technology, this can't be the only thing we have. Do you have any, um, have you heard, I've been listening to Hakeem Jeffries and and some of the, uh, I don't want to say rising Democrats, because Hakeem is like a risen Democrat, if you will. But I've been listening for them to talk about anything related, not just to gun violence, but right now I'm still hearing. I feel like a lot of defensiveness against the insanity that's coming out of the right. Are you hearing any new ideas, whether it's in the aftermath of these shootings or even just to, to kind of inject, like, here are some positive things we're going to try to do to get our country kind of feeling optimistic again. It's related to the gun violence because I think, Norm, I think that listening to just the GDP, like growing a little bit, isn't giving people at the, you know, individual level comfort. They're still dealing with rising cost of eggs because of an avian flu, cost of, you know, trying to buy a home. Are you hearing anything that isn't as defensive as what I'm hearing or, or are we too early to tell yet? 
it may be too early to tell, but I'm not hearing much of anything. And it's understandable in a sense. We have, well, it is in this sense. The House Republicans are going to be doing all of these, uh, you know, loosely call them investigations. The right has appropriated the term and Trump the term witch hunt, but that's <laughs> pretty much what we're going to be seeing and trying to pass very destructive legislation. If you're in the minority, the instinct is to fall back on trying to block really bad things from happening or to counter misinformation and disinformation. But the White House should be a place where you get more of the uh, proactive means of trying to reframe the agenda. Now, you know, that'll be a little difficult because so much of what they're going to be doing is flooding the zone with subpoenas for executive officials going after Hunter Biden and the like. But your point is really well taken, that there has to be something that tries to bring people together in a positive way. And, And you're right as well that just talking about the great stuff, when people are not feeling good, that's not going to do the trick. Uh, There has to be something more. It's not easy to figure out what that is or how you do it. But, you know, I think this has to be in part a celebration of what democracy brings combined with the warning of what happens when you lose it. And it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. So maybe we can end this conversation with something positive. So I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. I'll start so I can model model this a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of something that has been like something that, especially for someone like you or myself that kind of made you stop and say, that's pretty, you know, that's really good. And I'm, I, I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised. I, I saw all the amazing committee appointments, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and the amazing Ronnie Jackson on the COVID, whatever they're calling it, you know, COVID gotcha committee, as best as I could tell it. And it was interesting because here, you know, here we are committee appointment after committee appointment and having kind of Democrats who are incredibly qualified be denied. There was an interview with, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi is like in this, like, listen, no holds barred. I'm just like so happy. I'm going to say what I want. And so Nancy Pelosi made what I thought was just a very helpful kind of comment embedded within an interview she did with Maureen Dowd, which I think now covered in the New York Times, but probably what people didn't pick up on. And I think you and I understand, we want our listeners to understand a little bit about the sausage making. She, you know, I think Maureen asked a question, paraphrasing something to the effect of, you know, what do you have to say? You left Hakeem Jeffries, you know, with a lot of support, Democrats are unified around him, which is not an easy feat. But, you know, what do you say about kind of having him be the speaker during what might be the most turbulent time, the most turbulent Congress? And she was just very Nancy Pelosi, kind of very calmly, but immediately she basically said, like, she said, this is exactly what the Democrats are born to do. She said, if we can't help people understand in their chaos and their infighting and their, you know, near violent blows within the House chamber, we can't help people understand that we're the party that is the party that welcomes all, that tries to reserve judgment, that tries to listen. She said, if we can't do that, then I have failed, Hakeem has failed, and future generations have failed. And and I thought that that was one, it was an interesting answer from someone who could have given me a political one, but she basically said, like, the job is on us. And and I thought that was a great way. She basically wanted to 
have Democrats stay united. It's in her, it's in everyone's best interest, but I hope that that extends into what might be an interesting primary season, especially if Biden announces, as we expect, we could see other Democrats coming forward and that's totally reasonable, but if we don't get united. So I'll, I'll say that to me, it was a little bit of a, you know what, that's, that's a, that's a good, that's a positive moment. Not one I necessarily would have expected in the context of a Pelosi kind of quote exit interview. Anything that surprised you or made you smile this week? A couple of things that made me smile. I mean, one is I think we're beginning to see the impact of the cap on insulin prices. And I think it it could have a transformative effect out there. We have so many people with diabetes and access to insulin has been a huge issue. It's not just a financial issue. It really is a public health issue as well. And of course, if people don't get access to an inexpensive medication, the health costs more generally go up. And I I think this is extremely positive. The other is what seems to be and I'm in your wheelhouse now, that this new bivalent booster seems to provide some protection against some of the more pernicious strains of uh, of uh, the coronavirus. And we may be on track to coming up with an all-purpose vaccine, looking ahead to some of the other types of, of uh, virus strains that may emerge, that it's you know, it's a triumph of uh, research and uh, public health, if that's the case. So those are things that gave me at least a little sense of relief, a little uh, more positive this week. No, that's a good one. I should, you know, look, I'll always talk about COVID. I'll briefly say the the FDA advisory committee in a unanimous vote yesterday wanted to do basically what is being called a harmonization, meaning at some point, not today, because people have assumed that that vote meant that everything switches and that there's now only one type of vaccine available. Not the case. They just made an advisory kind of statement and vote to the actual FDA, which then has to take action, which then has to have the CDC take action. Long story short, this is an incredible movement. And Norm, it signals what I think is truly um, acknowledging worldwide that we're entering into an endemic phase. There are a lot of people, myself included, that in some days don't feel like that, but the agency making uh, the advisory committee making a recommendation that we do away with the kind of quote older vaccines that we still all have to carry the primary series because that needs to happen in order for you to get the updated booster that's going to go away there will only be one source really of a type of vaccine no matter whether you've had five shots or zero shots before and i think that's a real signal they eventually want to recommend to move this to an annual shot which is what's looking like the most support, but we don't have that decision yet. So yeah, it is a big deal. And it, it is something that is a positive and somewhat surprising. Um, so yes, that's a great note to end on. I want to thank my co-host, amazing Norm Ornstein, and to- hopefully give people a little bit of thought and some oomph if, uh, after a, a hard a hard week. Plus, I think there's some hopeful rays of sunshine and some advocates, uh, both on the hill and off the hill, trying to actually make things better. So in closing, just make sure that our listeners know that we're incredibly thankful and would love your help in just making sure people know about this podcast and tell us what you think. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and make sure that we hear you because words matter is something that we're trying to constantly improve. It's a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer for the network is Chris Cottonoir, and our producer is the wonderful Grant Haver. Next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feed somewhere around February. 
second or third. And I should note, I am going to be gone for a couple of weeks being a soccer mom to my son in Spain. I will come back with an incredible amount of insight into what the Spaniards think of the United States and how our trade agreements have been working out. Uh, And luckily I speak Spanish, but not Catalan. So I will see how that goes and have a lot to report. So I I am confident that you will be in good hands, but hope to, to talk and see you all soon. Welcome back to Words Matter to the members only section. We're so thankful you're here with us and hopefully tell more of your friends about becoming members. We wanted to take a bit of an extension on something we've spoken about and many people in the media are talking about, and that's around confidential documents popping up in all sorts of places. You've heard, Norm, we, we have on this podcast many times said, it doesn't shock me, doesn't surprise me. How each president has handled it is what can be the distinction. But in preparing again and just talking casually, you had an in- incredible insight that I want our listeners to have that I have not heard and seen, read, listened for in any podcast media, as newspapers, around kind of the impact of the transition or maybe the transition's impact on these appropriate kind of allocations of confidential documents. Say a little more and tell our listeners what you mean by that. Sure. You know, there are a couple of elements here. One is we know there's been this massive overclassification. So there are all kinds of documents marked, classified, floating around, and it's much more difficult to keep track of them. And I think people lose the the sense of deep care over a lot of this stuff. So that explains why you have a lot of these documents around. But the critical element here is we see Mike Pence finding the documents in his house Now the archives asking for all the previous vice presidents and presidents were alive to go through their things. And you think about why and why Biden would have all of this stuff in boxes. And what it amounts to is this. We have a long transition period. In parliamentary systems, of course, uh, you have an election and the very next day, the prime minister moves out of uh, number 10 Downing Street and the new one moves in. We go from the first week in November, usually right up until noon on January 20th. But the odd part of this is that if you are leaving office, you are still in charge right up until 1159.59 on January 20th. And then you got to get everything out of there, everything. But, you know, imagine if you are, let's say that Kavita is a practicing physician with a lot of patients, some of them dealing with serious diseases, and she has to minister to her patients right up until a particular nanosecond and then have everything out of the office. That means that you may not have access to the records of your patients. You may find yourself in a crisis. If you are a president or a vice president even, You've got stuff that's going on, and it's not clear what you can pack up well in advance. And so what often happens in these transitions is that in the final days before January 20th, the staff is just running around like crazy trying to throw everything together to get out of there. And I'm sure that this is what happened with Biden, and it's what happened with Pence. It is your staff is taken a bunch of stuff and they're putting it in boxes and there is less care taken about whether everything goes in the right box or whether things shouldn't be in the boxes. 
and there may be a jumble of papers in a file folder and you just put all the uh, papers in there. You don't go through everyone individually. And that explains, I think, a lot of it. And I will be surprised if the former presidents and vice presidents do their due diligence and actually do search through stuff. Most of them are going to find some things. But what's also important is to draw that distinction with what Trump did. Now, maybe some of the documents in Trump's boxes follow the same pattern, but we know that he specifically ordered that some classified materials be taken down to Mar-a-Lago, that he wanted to have them, including these letters uh, back and forth with Kim Jong-un, and that he resisted giving them back, that he lied about, he and his people lied about whether they had given them all back, that they tried to move them from one place to another to keep them from being detected. That's a very different matter than what appears to be enormous sloppiness, but that is basically triggered by the oddity of our transition. The transition I can't describe, I actually have not been present in that kind of 11.59 a.m. with, you know, 59 you know milliseconds to go. I haven't been in that situation, 99 milliseconds. But I have friends who have had to do that. And we were joking about how it's no small feat because weeks before any transition, you know, basically not everybody knows that when a White House is going to transition, the kind of process, even months in some cases, start for things, but this is also a working White House. So you're constantly accumulating the very kind of files and data and papers. And this is still a very paper intensive process. In fact, that's why small, maybe people don't know this. It changed in the end of the Obama administration, I believe, where the West Wing became a skiff. So the West Wing and the entire West Wing for visitors, people who are not uh, part of the West Wing staff, basically have to turn in all devices. And and that had more to do with kind of cybersecurity threats and threats from within. But on top of that, there was also for exiting visitors, inspection of bags and carrying papers out, some of that, again, for visitors, not for employees and staff. But I do think that that's um, a little bit of a theme around transitions themselves and also guidance. I talked to a security, someone who worked in the NSC with during my time, and we were just talking about like, we know all a lot of people probably have these confidential documents that unintentionally, no malintent most likely, but the number of times that there were memos and things like that. So we were all discussing like, wow, you know, this is this is not so easy to control, especially for the highest levels of office and the cabinet, in, in fact. So what I wondered though, what's your sense of how this is going to play out? What we've talked about the special kind of investigator. What do the next weeks look like? More and more documents? What do you expect, Norm? I should add, it's not just presidents and vice presidents that you alluded to cabinet officials, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, secretaries of homeland security. All of them are probably in the same situation. They have to wait until the very end. And you know, it wouldn't surprise me that Mike Pompeo has a bunch of uh, classified documents somewhere. So the uh, attorney general put himself into a little bit of a bind here. When you pick a special counsel for Trump, then you decide you've got to pick a special counsel for Biden. What do you do now about Pence? And what do you do about others who step forward if they find those documents as well? It's tricky, a tricky business. The critical question is, what does Jack Smith 
the special counsel investigating Trump do right now? If you charge Trump, as would be perfectly appropriate under the law, with possession of government property, illegal possession of government property, because he's got all of these documents, and we're talking about hundreds, not 20 or 30 or 10, you're going to have a dilemma on your hands because the others had possession as well, even if it was inadvertent. My sense of this is that the appropriate direction for Jack Smith to go in this area, because there are clear violations of the law, is about obstruction of justice. We know that as soon as the Biden people and as soon as the Pence people saw that there were classified documents, they immediately notified both the National Archives and then the Justice Department. They handled it the way you would want something like this handled. And that is not anything that you're going to prosecute. But if you hold on to documents after you are told to turn them over, after you've had months where the National Archives is saying, we know about these particular documents, and that means we're talking about much more sensitive stuff they knew they were missing. And then you move them from one room to another, and you have your lawyers instructed to say they're all sent over when, in fact, they have not been multiple times. You've got a very strong case for obstruction of justice. And that, I think, has to be weighing on Jack Smith and his uh, team of people as they go forward. But of course, we know in a political environment, if you charge Trump and don't charge the others, you're going to get a lot of pushback, and that'll be from the Republicans in the House, although it's much harder for them to do the pushback now that Mike Pence has emerged in the same situation. Yeah, it is. And uh, I, I completely agree. It would shock me if Mike Pompeo, I, these are just people in positions where, again, just the sheer volume of what's happening and the number of people around those individuals between special assistants and deputy cabinet members, it's entirely conceivable that something could happen. But you're right. It's kind of the actions with which you take once you have this information, as well as kind of the proactive. Like, again, we, you and I have remarked that we're a little surprised that Biden didn't corral everyone in the room and say, here are all the thousands of places I've gone. I know it's a big pain, but we just got to search and we got to find them. And I don't care if it's every Amtrak train known to man between here and Delaware, but we need to go through them and, and just have a systematic way to go through all of this. I, I can imagine that, that uh, there's reasons that didn't happen, but still, nevertheless, kind of the kind of thing that should happen. Shifting gears a little bit, what's on your radar for the month of February? We had some good GDP numbers. We've got the special, you know, kind of the investigations will continue. Not hearing as much from January 6th after effects and expecting anything, Norm, from the January 6th committee investigation, although I think that will become something that heats up as Congress gets into more of a rhythm. What's your sense? Yeah, I, I do think that's the case. And here, too, you know, now that we're getting many of these actors convicted of seditious conspiracy, I would expect that we will see Jack Smith's investigation ramp up on that front as well. And it's not just about Trump, obviously, we know. It's about Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and and it ought to be about Ginny Thomas too. The other thing to me is the deliberate move by the House Republicans in their rules package to eviscerate the Office of Congressional Ethics seemed to me clearly to be not about George Santos, but about the rogues gallery of uh, Republicans in the House, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, who are deeply implicated in the lead up to January 6th, 
and its aftermath, very likely violating the law along the way, very possibly violating the law along the way. And just to avoid an ethics case against them was something that they desperately wanted to do. And one question for me is whether we're going to see any repercussions or pushback for those members of Congress who are now investigating the January 6th committee itself. I'm, you know, I've likened this to giving Al Capone the authority to investigate Elliot Ness. But you know, I'll be watching for that. What I'm also going to be watching for along those lines, Kavita, is there is no more January 6th committee. There is no reason why the Senate can't pick up on that work and keep this in the forefront of people's minds. The right is now making a concerted effort to rewrite history. We're seeing all of these moves to say that Ashley Babbitt was a victim, that the Capitol Police were perpetrators, and that you know there really wasn't that much going on there anyhow. It was typical demonstration. It's a complete rewrite of the reality, but as it's pushed on so many of these uh, social networks and social media, there is a real need to continually remind people of what actually happened and who was involved. I was actually thinking about this today, oddly enough, because it's Holocaust Remembrance Day. And, you know, the whole point of this is to make sure that these horrific events in history don't get forgotten because other things intervene or because people try to rewrite the history or just because if you weren't there, don't remember it, it will go right by you. And this is something where we need to have the Senate still in the hands of Democrats, you know, not only provide a counter to all of these witch hunts that are going to be going on in the House, you know, if they drag in Anthony Fauci and try to uh, bludgeon him in a committee that apparently against their own rules is going to have many more Republicans than they're allowed to and fewer Democrats, I want the Senate to hold a hearing where they point out the truth and the reality of it. But I want them to do a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate that takes up what is in the files of the January 6th committee and continues to work on this to uncover the wrongdoing and make sure that the spotlight is on the wrongdoers. You, you opened up the door for me to talk about different forms of censorship, and I would be remiss if I didn't actually comment about the BBC documentary that explores Prime Minister Modi's role in a 2002 massacre in the state that my family is from, uh, Gujarat, where he was the state leader at that time. And there's a complete takedown of takedown of on both Twitter, YouTube, and I, I believe some other social media, but Twitter and YouTube were the ones that got attention in the United States because they, both Twitter and YouTube caved to kind of a series of documents from the government of India requesting for parts of the documentary to be censored, and then to also have the documentary labeled, especially when Indians try to access it, um, to be block links to the film and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it's resulted, it's, I highly recommend people watch it. That if you, all you have to do and actually to be able to watch it, no matter where you're listening, is to just Google BBC Modi documentary download, and you'll be able to see this. But that act of censorship, the kind of wiping away of crimes against humanity committed by what people call the world's largest democracy, especially with the G20 coming there, et cetera. That tells you where we're at, we're at Norm. Like when I was listening to you talking about that, it just made me think of 
kind of this background of that conversation that's going on amongst Indians and, and the world and how kind of shamefully companies, you know, still these companies are complying with those demands. Yet here you have Elon Musk who has taken off the reins and unfettered people who have actually had literally had like blood on their hands. So I, I'm, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time, but I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I, I just, uh, finally uh, on that front, I was amused that a lot of Twitter users have ripped Musk for this censorship and Musk responded by saying, Hey, I'm running SpaceX. I'm running Tesla. Even as I'm doing this, I can't keep track of everything that's going on. <laughs> but I, I noticed that that wasn't followed by, I'm going to take care of this and put it back up. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good one. That, or, or my favorite was like, I went to see Kevin McCarthy, my good friend. He had a birthday, and oh, I happened to see Hakeem Jeffries in the hallway. But I'm too busy to like, you know, go hang, go, go deal with this. But I actually think I know this sounds terrible, Norm. But if if this hadn't happened, this censorship and kind of bringing it to light, I don't think people would have watched the documentary, at least in the United States. So I really am hopeful that this very kind of disgusting acts of censorship and the actual original disgusting acts um, leveraged against Muslims. I actually hope that this makes people, I'm hoping listeners that are listening to this right now, literally go Google, go send it to someone. Don't need to watch all of it, but just learn a little bit about what happened 21 years ago when Modi was um, the chief minister of that state and how much of a cover up um, is happening 21 years later. So our members are amazing and loyal, and I know that they're uh, intellectually curious. So hopefully, hopefully we can uh, get more people a- aware. But I want to thank you, Norm, and also wish wish our audience for at least my part in this the next couple of weeks. I will be away, and uh, for our members only, I'll come back with some great tales of soccer from Barcelona. That'll be that'll be one of our members. How about we do a different spin? We do a soccer members only when I come back. It'll be fun because I'm actually going to a Manchester United, FCB Barcelona, it's their Europa League game, which is like a big deal because Barcelona is doing well, Manchester United not so much, but uh, I'll have a lot to report and fresh, fresh content for our members. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care.